This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, today for our hot question of the day, it's a topic that we're going to be discussing a little bit later on the show, and this has to do with the HPV vaccine. It's become much better known in the last... 15 years or so. And we now know that for young women, young girls, grade six and grade nine, uh, it is a vaccine that is available to them. And also, uh, some boys are able to get this as well, right? This is the vaccine that prevents the virus that later in life could cause cervical cancer and and other uh, cancer problems. Right now, though, the vaccine is only free for boys who are born in the year 2006 or later. Now, in New Westminster, one trustee is putting forward a motion to ask the Ministry of Health to do more for boys and men aged 9 to 26 and make it free for them, like it is free for girls and young women. Do you think this is a good idea? Is it time to make this vaccine, which we know is very effective, free to anyone who wants it? You say yes, no, maybe you're not sure about that. Check out our hot question of the day. You'll find it online at, at CKNW or at SimiSarah980. You can also email me, Simi at CKNW.com. So within the last half hour, we heard from RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky. Now, she was talking about the arrest of 47-year-old Cameron Ortiz. This is an RCMP intelligence official now charged with multiple breaches of the Criminal Code and the Security Act. Apparently, RCMP, uh, he was brought to their attention in light of a 2018 investigation they were doing with the FBI, raised some concerns. They started their own investigation. That led to these charges. The investigation is ongoing at this point. It's not finished by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, They are obviously keeping a lot of this under very tight control and close wraps. But here's some of what the commissioner had to say. As you already know, Mr. Ortiz, Ortiz, the Director General of the National Intelligence Coordination Centre, was arrested on Thursday, September 12th. He's been employed by the RCMP since 2007. Prior to his duties in the National Intelligence Coordination Center, he held positions in operations, research, and National Security Criminal Investigations Directorate. Mr. Ortiz has been charged for alleged criminal activity under the Criminal Code and the Security of Information Act. In 2018, the RCMP was supporting an FBI investigation, and through the course of this file, the RCMP uncovered possible internal corruption. We took immediate action and launched an investigation into the alleged activities. Our focus has been to diligently pursue this investigation, which led to the arrest. By virtue of the position he held, Mr. Ortiz had access to information the Canadian intelligence community possessed. He also had access to intelligence originating from our partners, both domestically and internationally. This level of access is appropriate given the position he held. That is RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky. Sorry about the quality of the audio there. I know it wasn't great, but what she had to say was very significant because, quite frankly, I can't think of when Canada has last seen a case like this. You've probably heard of other countries, right, having these high-profile cases, but not Canada. So what does this mean for us? Is this an embarrassment? Uh, should what, what should Canadian security be doing right now? Well, joining us to talk more about this today is Michelle Gino. 
Katsuya is a former CSIS agent and senior manager, also the author of Nest of Spies, and he joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Always a pleasure, Simi. Now, when you heard about this <laughs> case, first off, like what came to your mind? What did you think? Well, it's a great disappointment, of course, when you have a traitor among your rank. Uh, the uh, When you have the given your, your trust to somebody and they abuse that trust because of the position they have and the access that uh, to the information they had, um, it's always a great disappointment. But like you pointed out, it's not a common thing in Canada, yet it's not necessarily on, you, uh, uh, on scene of. We have to return to 2012 when National Defense was the victim of such traitor uh, with Jeffrey DeLille, who sold for a few years uh, secret to the Russian intelligence service. But for the RCMP, we have to return to the 60s and the 70s, where uh, Sergeant uh, Gilles Brunet uh, sold a secret to the Soviet intelligence service, the Russian again, uh, for close to uh, two decades. And unfortunately, he was not arrested before his death. He died in the 80s, and we discovered his, uh, his name and his uh, activities only a few years later when uh, uh, defector from the Russian uh, came and told us about it. Okay, that's it. so you're saying that we don't really have a lot of history when it comes to high-profile cases like this? No, no. Canada has an excellent track record in that perspective, and that's one of the reasons why we're not going to have uh, any rock throwing in our direction coming from our allies, because our allies have suffered a situation like this. Just last week, for example, the Australian discovered a similar case in, in their ranks uh, uh, in their own country. Uh, the CIA had to pull uh, their top source uh, close to Mr. Putin because they were afraid that their own president would sort of reveal the, the existence of the source. And that source had been working for, for two decades for the, the CIA. Uh, <clears throat> it's, it's part of the game to have some people uh, to try to infiltrate another uh, department. But it's part of the risk also where we have sometimes a rogue element that will do it for most of the time money reason right. uh, uh, to uh, to sort of use a position that they haven't tried to sell the information they, they get access to. Right, because in typical Canadian fashion, I think a lot of the, the coverage and things that I've been hearing and reading from people, they're concerned about how this is going to be viewed by Canada's allies if their allies' information was also compromised, and that is somehow our fault. But it sounds like, Michelle, from what you're saying is we've, we've been on the other end of this many times. Many times. <clears throat> and many times we've helped each other. Uh, we've, I've, I've participated to cases myself where we discovered a spy among the U.S. and we share with the U.S. Uh, uh, the information. It looks like it happened the other way this time in the course of uh, an investigation, a joint investigation between the RCMP and, and the FBI. The RCMP realized that some documents were uh, are coming from Canada, and that's where the investigated the investigation uh, started. And unfortunately, they discovered, or fortunately, depending how you want to see it, we've discovered that it was somebody from their rank, and they were capable to proceed with an arrest. Right? How? What does it say about our security issues, though? Are, are we suspicious enough of the people who actually work for us at that level? Do we do enough checking? Is do we need more procedures in place? Well, like I said, uh, if we look at our track records compared to the Americans who probably discovered every month 
a new mold uh, within their security and, and uh, intelligence uh, community. Um, it, it's not that common in Canada to a certain extent. Now, is it because we don't watch enough <laughs> and we don't pay yeah. attention enough? Or is it because we, we're, we're that good in protecting ourselves? It, it might be a combination of a little bit of both. I think we could be a little bit tighter. We could be a little bit better in some aspect. We definitely would need the uh, leaders and the politician to lessen more uh, during the Harper government, for example, we had a great difficulties to convince the Harper government about some of the spies and some of the agent of influence that we discovered around his own office and around his, his uh, ministers. Um, <clears throat> so the, Wait a minute, the what, do you, needs- what do you mean by that? Like, we knew that there were people who were spying in Ottawa? Absolutely. Absolutely. Canada is one of the countries in the world where there's the most spy activities. Contrary to a lot of people uh, might believe, Canada has a lot to offer. It's a society based on knowledge. Uh, We are uh, at the cutting edge of uh, technology in so many different fields. But not only do we have our own secret to protect, we have also the secret of our friends because we sit at all the major tables like NORAD, NATO, UN, etc., so we need we need to be capable to be able to raise the awareness, and I think in that domain, the general public needs to be a little bit more informed by the government, and the government should take a certain role, leadership role here in informing. But government after government, regardless of the color of their their their, their political party, um, they neglected that uh, that exercise. Are, are we now, too among trusting? the organization? I'm sorry. Are we too trusting? <clears throat> I think we're naive to the point of being borderline stupid sometimes when it comes to security and international affairs. Uh, but again, like I said, it's, it's very opportunistic too to often how the politician looks at the, no, the, the notion of national security. But the national security agencies themselves, they take it very, very seriously. Uh, and like I said, we have to return to the 60s and the 70s before we have a case like this in the RCMP. So that's a fairly good track record for an organization like this. Uh, and, and it means because we have sort of a, a vetting process called the, the, uh, the uh, uh, security process to, to vet people every five years for depending on which level of security access they have, secret or top secret. And uh, we, we try to sort of keep a good track of, of what's going on. We monitored also the, the exchange of document. But, you know, the human being is always the weakest link within the security system. And uh, when there is intention for somebody to, to do a rogue action, yeah. it's, it's possible. Just take, for example, the case of um, Edward uh, Snowden. He walked away with 1.2 million documents document in the palm of his hand because now technology allows us to walk around with a USB key that is, you know, very, very small and capable to load a lot of documents. So it's a totally different game. Uh, we got to be very, very careful. But it's, like I said, part of the deal. We need humans to work and protect us, but at the same time, those humans can be weak and uh, fall into the wrong side. It sounds like you're saying, though, Michelle, that if someone really wants to spy, they're going to find a way to do it. Uh, there's going to be a fine. They can find, they could find a way, uh, but it might be just a question of time before we find them as well. So uh, nothing is, is totally uh, uh, security proof in, in, in either way. Uh, that said, um, 
we need to be capable to raise, like I said, the awareness within the public, within the, the general uh, uh, government operations in order to avoid these kind of things. But we need to be aware of what are what are the what is at stake? Mm-hmm. What are the big players? And then the big players, like I said, in this particular case, are not necessarily a foreign country who are sending their spies against us. I wouldn't be surprised that we will discover that will be the Russian organized crime that tried to sort of buy this information because he was working on a very specific uh, money laundry organized crime, Russian organized crime mm-hmm. uh, file. And that in the uh, 90s, when the uh, Soviet bloc collapsed, a great number of KGB officers went to the organized crime and uh, kept working with them. So they can be very, very sophisticated and operating at the same level of a national intelligence organization. Well, I still have so many questions. Uh, Michelle, thank you for this. That was really enlightening. Great pleasure again. Appreciate that. Yes, Michelle Juno-Katsuya, who is a former CSIS agent and senior manager, author of a book called Nest of Spies, giving us some more perspective on this Cameron Ortiz investigation and the charges that have resulted from that. Today, lots of discussion. We were going to do this anyway, but then it turned out this morning they were going to have this press conference. Uh, The RCMP employee charged with trying to disclose secret information. We heard from the top Mountie, Brenda Lucky, that that employee was part of a national security criminal investigation. And they were working with the FBI when they were kind of tipped off to some of this information. So we wanted to get more information on this. The commissioner says news of the arrest of 47-year-old Cameron Ortiz had sent ripples through the intelligence community. The news of his arrest has shaken many people throughout the RCMP, particularly in federal policing, as well as the broader domestic and international security and intelligence communities who worked with Mr. Ortiz. That is Commissioner Brenda Lucky. So where are we at with this? How much information of the RCMP actually put out there. What are the repercussions of Canada being caught up in all of this? Joining us now is Global News reporter Mercedes Stevenson, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News and host of the West Block to talk more about this case. Mercedes, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. You've been covering this for days and days now. How big of a situation is this, do you think, for the RCMP? Oh, it's an unprecedented breach of national security. The question is, did he manage to sell any of what he actually is alleged to have acquired? Um, and if so, what? Because the amount of information in his possession, according to my sources, and the RCMP refused to confirm uh, really anything substantive about the investigation today. But what we've been reporting and are confident in is that he had extensive information that was highly, highly classified that he had removed from RCMP headquarters. Um, And the kind of access he would have had was to any criminal or terrorist investigation, any money laundering investigation, any uh, kind of national security investigation. So it it certainly means that he would have had access to all of that. And uh, the, the potential scale of the damage as a result is astounding. And that's where you're hearing from allies who are deeply concerned about this and very upset about it. They you know, their allies are understanding. Uh, that's the RCMP's line. The line that we're hearing from allies is something very different. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk a little bit more about as well, because we heard from an expert earlier who said, listen, every country has this kind of problem. Canada doesn't have it very often, but it also sounds like we don't know a lot about how often this could be happening in the Canadian security services. 
No, I mean, it's, it's certainly been rare historically, at least in cases that we found out about. The significance of this one isn't that every country has someone who leaks, that they, they do. It's the scale. It's the person who right. had the access. This was not a junior employee uh, or, or somebody who was able to access a limited amount of material. This is somebody who could get into anything he wanted without potentially drawing attention. And there's a lot of questions about why he didn't draw attention, why they didn't notice something was wrong, uh, how he was able to access highly sensitive information repeatedly without that sending up any flags. There's questions from allies, and I can tell you from other security agencies inside Canada as well, about the RCMP's procedures right now. And they're reassuring us that they've done everything possible, but they're not laying out how they've changed the procedures or what was missing from the procedures. But at the end, I asked uh, Commissioner Lucky about whether or not he was polygraphed, and she said no. And that's interesting because I've had a number of sources tell me that if you want to work in CSIS or CSE, the other intelligence agencies, you absolutely would have to have a polygraph to have that level of intelligence. So there's questions now sort of about some of how the RCMP conducted this. Why was it that the Americans told us about it? Now, I've had experts tell me that's not uncommon. In fact, it's happened in almost every case. And part of that's just because the American intelligence establishment is so much bigger and so much more powerful and has so many more resources. But obviously, it raises questions about Canada's ability to detect insider threats. Right. So what do we know about what he was working on? Like, he also seemed to be close to the former RCMP commissioner, Bob Paulson. What is that all about? So he was the senior advisor on intelligence to Bob Paulson, and Bob Paulson uh, was very impressed with him, was initially the person who brought him into the force and, and wanted to recruit him and promote him. So there's a lot of questions about how this guy kept getting promoted, too, because he was a civilian. And that's not typical in the RCMP. Usually high-ranking are uniformed officers uh, who, who are in there. And, and there's a lot of questions about, you know, how, why did he rise so fast? He was certainly a reputation for being very bright. I've talked to a lot of people who worked with him, and they all say they had no indication he was capable of this. He seemed to be very kind of discreet, um, that, that he was obviously very, very bright and knew his files, which included, by the way, China and Asia. Uh, he spoke Mandarin. Those were areas of expertise, which obviously are now causing significant concern for investigators uh, as they try to figure out what happened. But at, at this point, you know, there's just sort of all these questions about who is he, why. The why is a big one. We know he had uh, debt, but that debt, my source says, is student debt. Not a particularly pressing kind in the way that uh, perhaps, you know, loan shark debt or even credit card debt would be where someone might urgently be trying to pay it off. He did have his PhD, too, so it's not necessarily surprising he'd have student debt. Um, And and my source alleges he was trying to sell this information, at least in one occasion. So it raises that question of what was driving him. And then based on that, could you have caught it? Sometimes it's very hard to catch. Other times, maybe not so much. And in this case, we just don't have the answers about that. And have you noticed a change in how people are now remembering him as well? I saw one of these global news stories earlier this week about in the beginning, there seemed like shock. And now they're being now you're hearing a different story. Yeah, well, I'm hearing from other people who are in the RCMP uh, that they're hearing a change. They all still say he was highly intelligent. But, and it went from, you know, he was such a great guy, I can't believe this could be possible, to, well, you know, he was arrogant, and, and there were some other telling signs. Some people say, no, it wasn't arrogance, it was confidence. But you're starting to see that finger-pointing now of who's, who's responsible and therefore perhaps remembering him differently. Uh, but he, he certainly was well-respected, and he had access to uh, anyone and anything that he wanted to in terms of intelligence investigations in the RCMP. And that's where the broader concern comes into for allies, because it means he knows about allied operations being run for example, by the Americans or by the Brits. And in terms of the Canadian context, he certainly would have had, uh, my sources allege, the identities 
of people who were working as undercover agents. And in the case that, that my sources identified as that 2015 attempt to pass information, uh, he was allegedly offering you know, the guy who was selling criminal syndicate cell phones information about an RCMP investigation into Ooh. him. Uh, and we do know that at least one of the RCMP investigations into that individual was using undercover operatives who were posing as drug dealers. Wow. I understand. I got the impression today from the press conference as well that the RCMP is not happy with all of the media coverage of this. Do they not understand that the, the public clearly wants to know more about this as well? They they. They don't, and they uh, they took five days to have this press conference. Um, they didn't even release a statement until yesterday publicly. So, you know, the, the RCMP seems to struggle to understand that this is an issue that catches people's attention, Canadians and people abroad, because it's national security. And yes, it's an election. Uh, and in that sense, they're probably luckier there'd be a lot more attention being paid to this. But it certainly has people's attention, not just here in Canada, but around the world. I mean, it's been in The Guardian, The New York Times, uh, Australian yeah. news, Danish news, because it's just so rare that you see a scale, uh, a breach at this kind of scale, potentially. Right. Mercedes, thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me. That is Mercedes Stevenson, our Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News and host of the West Block. We've had the HPV vaccine now for about 15 years. Initially, we made it available to young girls, girls in grade six, and then girls in grade nine. And now pretty much any young woman can get the HPV vaccine for free. But that's not the case for boys. In fact, uh, for boys born in 2006 or later can get it for free, but that also leaves out a lot of young men and boys. Well, a new Westminster school trustee is considering sending a letter to the Ministry of Health to try to change that. So we wanted to learn why that is. So Danielle Connolly uh, joins us now to talk about why she's putting this motion forward. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, hi. Thank you very much, Timmy. What made you think of doing this? Uh, so I have two sons myself. Uh, one who, who was able to get the vaccine in 2006. He just snuck in, uh, or sorry, when, when they first introduced them to seven, in 2017, because he was born in 2006. And then I have an older son who was not able to access that. And so when I went to our doctor to to find out about getting it for him, I found out it was going to be $500 approximately to, to have him immunized. And That's expensive. It is expensive. I know there's some people out there who have told me they, they have been able to get coverage through their, their provider, uh, their extended care provider, but uh, we checked and ours does not cover that. Now, what is the thinking behind making sure girls can have it, but not necessarily making it as available to boys? Uh, my understanding from the research I've done, and, and please keep in mind I'm not a doctor, <laughs> but um, I have done quite a bit of research on it uh, before I put this motion forward. I believe it was the herd mentality. So if they, and, and I think the cancers were more prevalent or, or seemed to be more prevalent in, in girls, and, and it was that herd vaccination mentality. If they got all the girls, then the rest of the population would be covered. So I think that we all know from stories in, in the media that uh, you know, 100% expectation of, of people getting a vaccination is, is, is not accurate. It's, it's not something we can really rely on. Right. And also, like, we never know, right? We're, we're covering all the females. Like, why not cover the boys as well? Well, exactly. It, 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 uh, it seems to me um, an oversight. And, you know, being in the position I am in now, um, I've certainly come to realize that, you know, we can see and address certain, certain issues, but if it's not brought to our attention, how do we know? that yeah. this problem exists. So this, this is some of the thinking behind it. 
Uh, interestingly enough, it was actually two boys in New Westminster who who initiated the petitioning to the government um, back, I believe, their first piece went in 2014. So, and and. and you know, they, they were able to, through their advocacy, see it come about in 2017, but both those boys actually missed out on the free vaccines. They're in that group. They, you know, they aged right. out. So <laughs> all their work and all that, that oh, advocacy, and, and, and they aged out. You know, their family was still on the hook for $1,000 to have their two That's sons vaccinated. That mm-hmm. is a lot. So, Daniel, what kind, of, what kind of reaction have you been getting to this? Uh, very positive reaction. Uh, you know, our, our school board has been very receptive. The rest of uh, my, my fellow trustees um, got behind this motion, and I'm, I'm quite optimistic that our board meeting, it will be passed, and, and we'll be able to send a letter off. And have you talked to any, like, Ministry of Health officials about this? Because in hindsight, given the fact that just looking at some of the research as you were talking about there, it protects males and females against two types of HPV that cause genital warts and seven types of HPV that can cause cancer, why wouldn't we vaccinate boys as well? Again, I think it, I, I would like to believe that it was an oversight. Um, you know, when you help, when you call your health local health authority, you know, they're just giving you the message. They're just the, the messengers and and reading you know the piece where story you don't qualify. So I, I would like to believe it was just an oversight and you know brought to their attention that they'll be able to address it. I know that there has been some advocacy from these young boys up until as recently as 2017, um, still fighting for this. So I don't know, maybe they just need a little bit more of a push. (laughs) Maybe they do. Okay, so what happens with your motion? Walk me through what happens now. So it was approved at our committee meeting uh, unanimously, and now it goes forward to our our board meeting uh, and as a motion. And once that, hopefully... uh, optimistically will be approved and I, I can't see why it wouldn't be and that's our, our September 24th meeting right uh, then we'll be writing a letter um, to the ministry actually the Ministry of Education as well because I do think that there's a bit of a tie-in mm-hmm. you know if they're if they're if they're offering offering vaccines in schools why not offer it yeah. at a certain point to these kids who, who missed out and it's really quite a you know it's a fairly small percentage but it's enough that I think it's worth putting it forward and, and trying to, to have some equality on this piece. I think so too. Would you, have you heard from other school districts? Like, would you like to see more school districts get on board here to kind of increase the volume of the voice? That would be great. I mean, you know, the louder the volume, I'm sure that hopefully the sooner, sooner will be heard. Um, you know, New Westminster put forward, um, we had uh, Selena Tribe come to us uh, last fall and she put forward the information about the menstrual initiative and we got on board with that and that you know that's just a really a great piece to look to to see how a number of voices can really advocate behind something and now look this fall where menstrual pads and all you know menstrual products in all the schools in bc they were very receptive to that so i'm hopeful you know that's kind of our role we're here to to provide a voice and and speak on behalf of students and, and i think this is an important piece that's an interesting point, though, because like, think about how fast that happened, right? When it providing menstrual products, as soon as we did, everybody was like, "Yeah, why weren't we doing that before?" Like, that makes perfect sense. Are you hoping exactly. maybe that this sort of similar situation will happen now? I yes, uh, my fifteen year old is still not vaccinated. I'm hoping that you know, yeah, <laughs> we can squeak in and, and and get that. But you know, that's certainly not something that will will hold us 
that. Uh, where it was more just kind of informing ourselves, and 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 I don't, you know, public awareness. I don't think is is that good as well on this piece. And so I think more the more parents that kind of take notice and and, and realize. You know, a lot of times when you're getting vaccinations in schools, it's just check the box. Yep, yep, I want my child vaccinated. Sounds good. Yeah. And they maybe don't realize that their child had, you know, their older child had missed out on something. So so it's an awareness piece on, on both sides uh, for parents as well as for the government. That is so true. Danielle, thank you so much for your time and raising awareness on this. Thank you so much to me. Appreciate that. That's Danielle Connolly. She's a new Westminster school board trustee who's bringing forward this motion. Uh, they want, she wants to send a letter to the Ministry of Health here in BC to say, hey, I think we should make the HPV-9 vaccine free of charge for boys and men aged 9 to 26. Right now, boys can get it for free only if they're born in 2006 and later. Lots of attention, lots of focus in recent weeks on the issue of e-cigarettes and vaping. And that's because of these health concerns that we have seen in the United States in particular, where they have had hundreds of reported cases of a lung illness that they believe is linked to vaping. They've now had seven reported deaths as a result of that. So health officials in Canada are keeping a very close eye on this whole situation. As a result, many doctors are warning people don't necessarily be fooled. Don't think that vaping might be better than cigarettes because we've heard lots of people who took up vaping say, well, that's how I quit smoking. But how much better is it really than your original bad habit? Well, as part of a global news series, we take a look at the similarities between the two and what experts are afraid of is a new generation of nicotine addiction. Joining us now is global news reporter Emily Lazatin with more. Hi, Emily. Hi, Simi. So you took a look at this. This is a really, I hear, a prevalent issue from smokers all the time where they say, oh, man, this was the only way I was able to quit smoking. Huge, yes. And I mean, I can relate to that, not personally, but with people in my family um, who who do smoke and they've taken up vaping, but have also said in recent um Days just when I actually started this uh, series last week, I said, "Hey, you know, read read this. This is what's happening in the states, um, and I I believe it's a big deal, and that's why we're looking into it now." And I had this family member quit vaping and go back to smoking, which you what? know you could argue <laughs> like just in the last week because of what you were talking about. Yes, so um, I <laughs> was helpful. really I I personally again was concerned, so I said, "Hey, this is what's happening. Just you know, make your own decision." Um, but a lot of what we're seeing in the states, um, so there's there are hundreds of now illnesses linked uh, to vaping, and I believe we're at seven deaths now. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those deaths have been linked to THC. So when I, I mean, I went out to my first part of the series, I went out to talk to students, and we know that's a huge problem. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about it for months now, and I asked them, you know, hey. This is what's happening. Are you concerned? Um, you know, most of them are like, yeah, but you know what we're reading here, what we've heard is that it's related to THC. So right. I- I'm not vaping THC. I'm vaping, you know, zero grams of nicotine or X amount of grams of nicotine. Yet, uh, let- let's listen to this doctor who says, listen, just because some of the deaths have been linked to THC, there's little research to prove that this has no harm whatsoever in the long term or immediate future. Yes, uh, several of the cases were related to THC, but many of these users are using both the THC e-cigarettes and the nicotine e-cigarettes, and many of them are using nicotine-only e-cigarettes. So it is certainly not 
just a THC problem. Uh, it's a problem both with THC e-cigarettes and nicotine e-cigarettes, and to suggest otherwise is irresponsible. You know, Emily, what I find so fascinating about this is people's kind of willingness to hold on to this habit. Obviously, it's an addiction, right? There are some issues with that. Mm-hmm. But if this were almost any other product that had these kinds of concerns and problems, people would quit it no problem, but it's this addiction that keeps people hooked into it. It is an addiction. And in talking to these doctors, um, it really is just another form to get hooked on nicotine. And what we talked about in the stories um, this morning is that these are being marketed in ways where we don't know because the regulations are very loose here in Canada, right? You know, it's, it's, we're, right. we, we allowed vaping, yet these products cross market. So they come from Asia, United States, right here in Canada, and not all of them are um, marked right, or they don't list all the ingredients. And I even had doctors um, telling me, one of the doctors saying, listen, what has zero grams of nicotine may have a gram or two and you don't even know. And a student told me from New Westminster last week that he thought he was just vaping because he thought it was cool, wanted to Right. do it with his friends. He was smoking zero grams. He thought he was smoking zero grams. And all of a sudden, a month later, he's hooked on nicotine. Oh. So like, what are the standards in here then? Like, is there no universal standard of what they're allowed to put in these cartridges that they're selling? Right now, the as far as Canada goes, it's very loose. And I know that the federal government is looking at... Um, tightening these rules as in you know let's let's have these properly labeled but so tomorrow which is the third part we're going to talk about how loose these regulations are and how we went so far with pot and we were so concerned with getting pot out of kids hands and restricting rules yet it takes a few hundred dollars simi to set up a vape shop and it's apparently causing all these problems. Right. And I know you also talk to doctors as well about like we these products, as you said, are crossing borders all the time, right? Like they're just we don't know where they're coming from and you don't know at the place of origin what was in it. Like, can we trust the list of ingredients? Yes. I talked to Dr. Um, Schwant for the CDC. Uh, many of these products that were that seem to be implicated in this uh, this health issue most likely cross the borders themselves, and I wouldn't expect the uh, the health impacts not to cross the borders. Um, the United States, where the initial cases were seen, was able to rapidly ramp up their surveillance efforts, and Canada has followed suit, and we'll be watching we'll be watching closely in all of the provinces and territories for similar cases. Doesn't it feel, Emily, like we're playing catch up here with this? So it does. And one question we were talking about in the newsroom today in the past few days was how come we're not seeing it here then in Canada? Right. And that yeah. begs the question. And that, that come, and that's, you know, then it goes into, well, it's, it's the U.S. It's a product in the U.S. Well, no, these, these products cross borders. And, um, what happened is, and in, in talking to the two doctors, they both said, listen, maybe it just started in the United States. But what happened in the United States was the states that noticed it were very quick to mobilize. So the CDC in right. the U.S., their health authorities, they just, they were very quick to mobilize, and they started getting on it really quickly. And then everybody else just started noticing. And, for example, us, now we're, like Health Canada is just saying in the past little while, okay, now we're going to start to monitor it. But the doctors both say they wouldn't be surprised if cases had already popped up. Right. We just haven't recorded it yet. Okay, so there's lots more to come on this. So tomorrow when we talk to you, uh, when you hear more about your series, what are you going to be covering? 
We're going to be talking about, um, you know, all along we had been keeping an eye on pot shops and cannabis and worried about children getting their hands on it. Yet should have we, like, did we miss vaping? Should that have been a conversation? Okay, sounds good. Emily, thank you. You're welcome. That is Emily Lazatin, Global News reporter, with a series this week on the issue of vaping. Forestry is and will continue to be an important part of the rural economy and the BC economy as well. As we journey together through this period of adjustment to the well-predicted drop in the log supply due to the end of the pine beetle wood, these action items announced today will help support workers as we focus on a future where we maximize value for every log coming out of the publicly held forest lands rather than maximizing volume. It's been a tough summer for that gentleman right there. That is Forest Minister Doug Donaldson, who's taken a lot of criticism for the lack of what seems like the government response to the issues in the forestry industry. Well, that announcement right there uh, was signaled a bit of a change on that front, announcing that the provincial government will provide $69 million to fund a new series of measures to support BC's forest workers. But let's get the details on this, all the background, all of that, with the help of Global News reporter Richard Sussman, who joins us now. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. does feel like this was a long time coming. It sure does. And no surprise that Minister Doug Donaldson was asked by reporters in Prince George, what took so long? Yeah. Because that's been the big criticism, is that the provincial government just hasn't done enough to deal not just with the closures and moving forward with the forestry sector, but all the workers who have been affected. Donaldson said today 3,000 workers in the province have been affected by the closures, and what was announced today was funding to help them. But around the question of why it's taken so long, Donaldson says, well, they've been in the community, they've been working with individuals, trying to ensure that they have the best uh, package possible to deal with this issue. Right. And then the other thing as well, Critics have been saying, why did it take so long to ask the federal government for help? The province finally asked, but it was just a few weeks before the federal election started. Now we're in an election. There's no government in place in order to make those decisions. So critics were really quick to point out, well, the Fed should be willing to help on this and provide some money. And now we're hooped that we won't be able to receive that funding until after the federal election. Both those things, obviously important points here. And you know, every minute is valuable for these people who are out of work up uh, in the interior and other parts of the province. Right. So then what does today's announcement do for those people? Yeah. So there is funding now here, $69 million built in to try to support these workers. And it has affected those in the lower mainland as well. We've seen these closures in Surrey and in Maple Ridge. Uh, a big part of that money will be to establish uh early retirement bridging programs for older forestry workers. So if a worker has lost their job that's over the age of 55, uh, they will be eligible uh, for this early retirement uh, bridging money. The other thing it's going to factor in is if there is a younger worker who has lost their job and could replace an older worker who hasn't, that older worker above the age of 55 uh, could receive uh, some of that funding. Uh, there's also really interesting, a new short-term forest employment program, and that's going to be targeted at addressing the issues around uh, forest fires. So they okay. will be hiring workers who are out of work in order to try to you know, clear the forest floor in order to help prevent forest fires down the road. Uh, and then another part of the money will go to uh, skills training uh, and uh, community grants uh, for training to try to retrain forestry workers uh, 
to find work elsewhere uh, because of the concerns that this could be a really long-term uh, impact on those uh, forestry-based right. communities. Is this, Richard, do you get the sense, like, is this what the forestry industry was looking for? Or are there pieces missing? Are they yeah. happy with this? There's lots of pieces missing. And yeah. I think the big piece about it all is competitiveness. So the COFI, uh, the Forest Industry Group, released yesterday a 60-point plan uh, to address some of these concerns, but also far beyond that around competitiveness. And I spoke to BC Liberal critic John Rustad, uh, and what he told me as well is another big issue is stumpage. And so those are fees uh, that are applied, a rate pro provided by the provincial government. The way that it's done in Alberta is every month the rate is reviewed, uh, and that allows for you know more consistency in the pricing. In BC, what happens, it's reviewed once a year with three smaller uh, quarterly updates, and Rustad says that just isn't good enough. The defense from the province, though, is that stumpage is tried and tested and also an integral part of the uh, legal cases that are now going on around softwood lumber in the United States, and, and BC will not be doing anything to address stumpage. But the bottom line is that the industry wants the province to do more around being competitive moving forward. BC's trying things. Yeah. They're trying to, to have more value added. They're trying to use as much of the resource as possible. But obviously, with a changing industry and the effects from pine beetle and fires, BC has just fallen behind here. And it is really, really hurting workers and communities. Right. So how much of this, you mentioned this, but the softwood lumber dispute, yeah. like how much of this... Do they think, oh, wait a minute, until we get this solved, it's going to be fine? Like, are they blaming the softwood lumber dispute for this? Yeah, so not in huge regards to me. I think it's one of those things where the industry is just learning to live with it. And I think the reality is that there will be no action on the softwood lumber deal uh, while Donald Trump is in the White House. And the Canadian government has tried, but we're right now working sort of on a bridge deal uh, until there can be a long-term solution after the previous deal expired. And I don't expect that we'll, we'll get any resolution on that until there's a change uh, in Washington. And uh, that could be uh, next year, and that could be five years down yeah. the road. So also, it know, might not it matter be because uh, we've had softwood lumber disputes no matter who's in the White House. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the challenges, too. They can't even have a conversation saying right. at this point that's relevant, right? It's like, totally. so, you know, in the past, we've had been at the table, we've had disagreements, we've gone back and forth, and finally we've chalked at a deal. At this point, we're not even at and, and there's no yeah, real there's meaningful no table. discussions there's even no taking table. place around it. So, you know, that is one of the major issues, obviously. And, you right. know, Canadian wood could be good to build one of those tables. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. But first, <laughs> got to build the table. First, got to chop the tree down. We're so right. far behind. Richard, yeah, yeah, exactly. thank you for that. Thanks, I appreciate Sammy. it. Thanks, that's Sammy. Richard Zestman, our global news reporter, talking about these new forest workers programs announced by the provincial government today. $69 million to fund a new series of measures to support the forestry industry, the workers in particular, who've been impacted by mail closures. Well, it is a controversial practice. And today, the BC government made some moves to end it in this province. It's a practice that social services contracts health officials when they believe there are potential safety risks to infants, but they do this without the parents' consent. 
It's a practice known as birth alerts, and it's been used for a long time in hospitals right across this country and different provinces. And it was actually condemned recently by the inquiry that we had into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. So what happens is the Ministry of Children and Family Development issued the alerts, which could result in the potential seizure of a child when social workers get a report about high-risk expectant parents. And so they're assuming there could be a problem or concerns about the safety of the child at birth. And so what the minister for MCFD says is that they're changing the way they work with and support high-risk expectant parents to help keep newborns safe and families together. Now, this comes about three months or so after the network APTN reported that the MCFD had apprehended an Indigenous newborn dubbed Baby H just two days after it was born in Kamloops. They had initially attempted to take the child just 90 minutes after birth, even though close family members were there to say, what are you doing? No, 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 like you can't do this. Uh, The grandmother was there, like other grandparents were there just to help out. And they weren't listening. So that was a very controversial case. And then there was a video of a similar incident in Manitoba. This video went viral back in January. It sparked quite a bit of backlash. And by the way, just before we play that for you, a warning, some listeners may find this audio disturbing. Hey guys, we're not going to discuss this any further. Child and Family Services has the power to apprehend the child. Okay, we're going to act. We're going to actually physically remove the baby. I'm going to pray for you. I don't want to do that. Okay. You Both go, of you. you do you feel good? Do you feel back. good doing this? No one's okay. saying we don't want that to happen. We're just asking for your help. Okay. So, are you going to comply? If not, we're going to have to physically remove the baby. I don't want to do this. Oh my God. Okay. And then you got to work on the steps to get the baby back, getting the child back. We we will comply. I, I okay. don't want to see police have to take baby. I know, and that's, I don't want to do that. That's why I'm asking mom to yeah, cooperate. No, we, we and let's... Can we just have like five fifteen? No, no, sorry. There's no time to say no, goodbye. No, it has to be right now. <laughs> oh, good jeez. Awful, right? Heartbreaking. That was from a case in Manitoba back in January. It was made public. I mean, can you imagine putting a mother who had just had a baby? Through that experience, the stress, the awfulness, you are just setting the entire situation up for failure at that point. Now, this has been a practice, as I mentioned, in in several provinces, BC had been doing this. And uh, we heard yesterday from the Minister of Children and Family Development that they will no longer be doing this here in BC. They do believe that these birth alerts had been disproportionately used on marginalized and Indigenous women. And now they're saying, yes, we know this can be traumatic to mothers. Oh, really? Took you that long to figure that out? All I had to do was witness one of those situations to know how traumatic that could be to the mothers and all of this. So now they're saying that this new approach is going to focus on providing early supports and preventative services to expectant parents. Honestly, my mind has just been blown. So instead of doing what they were doing, which is showing up to take the baby, now they're going to show up and say, how can we help you? 
you think maybe they should have been doing this all along. Oh man, some of these stories just get me so worked up when I hear about this. They're hoping now to allow for a more trusting and collaborative relationship in these situations. Okay, well, that's good, right? Cheryl Kasmer is a political executive with the First Nations Summit and joins us now to talk more about this change in policy from the Ministry of Children and Family Development. Cheryl, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what do you think about this news then? Long time coming, but good, right? Well, it's definitely a step in the right direction, and it certainly has been a long time in coming. Um, Just listening to that clip that you just shared with the audience um, a few seconds ago has just, I'm just shaking. I'm, I'm physically shaking. It's just absolutely deplorable and unacceptable what has happened to Indigenous mothers and families across this country. Yeah, Cheryl, we had the same reaction here as we were listening to that. How common were cases like that? That was not an isolated case, was it? No. It's more common than people people know. Um, and it's been happening for, for decades. And so, you know, we have uh, new families that have been um, subjected to this um, trauma and are expected to, you know, move on and have a good life after something like that happens. Um, as you mentioned in your comments, it definitely puts them at a disadvantage. And um, it just tears families apart. So this new change, they're talking about actually showing up down in the hospital and providing help. That would certainly be welcome. Do you think this will make a difference? Well, I think the help needs to happen long before um, a family or a young mom Uh, goes into the hospital um, to have a baby. And this is what we've been um, lobbying and advocating for with both provincial and federal governments in terms of child welfare when it comes to Indigenous families, is that their mandates are quite narrow in that the majority of it focuses on preventative measures, or protection, I should say. Um, Whereas our perspective is the more support that you put into preventative measures, Um, the less likely you're going to end up in a situation where um, a child protection case um, comes to to fruition, right? Yeah, so sure. What do you think has to happen then? In an ideal situation, if the government is listening, what do you think would work? Well, there needs to be changes to um, not just the to the um, act itself, but it also has to uh, trickle down to how um, the services are being provided by, by the social workers themselves. And it also needs to be done in full partnership with um, Indigenous communities and nations and the families and um, families directly. And, um, you know, there's there's been, we've been calling for, you know, overhaul of the way the existing act is. And I know that the province um, in partnership um, has been working towards making some of those changes but I don't think that we're going to realize any um, significant change until um, nations are able to fully exercise their inherent right and jurisdiction on child welfare, which we will see happen um, come January 2020 when Bill C-92, oh my goodness, excuse me, comes into effect. Right. Okay. So what is Bill C-92 and what kind of a difference will that make? It's a federal act um, respecting uh, First Nations um, jurisdiction and authority over child welfare. 
Right. So First Nations will be able to create their own laws, um, and they'll be the ones to determine how child welfare issues will be dealt with um, within their communities. Is it time then, Cheryl, do you think the time is coming now where we are going to be more proactive instead of reactive? I think it's definitely time. Um, I don't know how many more examples and how many more families' lives need to be crushed um, before we start to realize that there needs to be some significant change in the way that we do business um, and, and how we deal with children and families. Um, for far too long, First Nations people have been subjected to these um, archaic um, methods and institutions that have ripped us apart um, for centuries, beginning with the residential school and then the 60s scoop. And even to this day, you know, referencing baby, what happened to baby H and her family. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't a long time ago. That was just a little while ago. Right. And so if we are so good then, Cheryl, at identifying um, high risk, you know, mothers where the baby might have problems after birth, why can't we identify them then before birth and say, what can we do to help? Like, what has been that disconnect? Well, the disconnect is not being in, in the community. Um, MCFD doesn't reside in those communities. They don't know the families. Um, who knows the families best but the communities? And so that's where the, um, that's where the empowerment needs to be, is, is on the ground in communities so that um, investments can be made into families, into children, to prevent um, situations like this from happening. So if we were able to invest more into preventative services and programs, then the less likely we have to deal with protection issues down the road. Is this a big step then, do you think? BC saying, all right, we are no longer going to do this. We are no longer going to have these birth alerts. Well, I said it's definitely a step in the right direction. And I find it um, kind of ironic that um, just last year, um, they... They announced a five-point plan on breastfeeding. I don't know. I don't. Rem- I don't know if you recall that, but yeah. um, they came out and made the announcement, and, and um, it was as a result of a study that had taken place over a period of time that suggested that it was better for infants to be with their with their birth mother and to be able to have access to either breast milk or breastfeeding in order to form that bond. Well, they come out with that report last year, but then on the other hand, they still go about their business of removing children from birth. And so it definitely is contradictory. And um, it's just things like this that make me even more um, frustrated, I guess, in that, you know, just listen to what we have to say. We're the ones who know best as First Nations people and First Nations communities. And just work with us. If you work with us and it's, and it's proven that when you do, when we do things in partnership, that um, there's successes at the end of the day. So I just, I just urge them to continue to be full partners in the reform of child welfare the way that it currently is to um, change it so that it is more reflective of First Nation interests and needs. Are you hopeful at all, Cheryl? Uh, yeah, I am. I have to be. <laughs> Um, I do see, you know, some successes. Um, 
lately with uh, the change in governments that we've both had provincially and federally. Um, I think that we've, we've made some strides in terms of going down the right path together. Um, and it's just going to take some time, but um, I see things changing. Well, that would be a good thing. Uh, Cheryl, thank you so much for your time on this. Thank you. That's Cheryl Casimer, political executive with the First Nations Summit, joining us to talk about a change in policy from the Ministry of Children and Family Development. And it is a significant change in policy. Right now, though, we want to talk about Canadian students and whether or not they are prepared for the real world. We hear stories like this all the time, right? Kids who don't know how credit cards work, don't understand how to open a bank account. Stories like that. And it's a question that Global News online journalist Megan Colley has been uh, diving into. You can see her series of stories actually on globalnews.ca. But she also had a chance to talk with our Nikki Reitmeyer about this. This concept of not knowing what you want to do with your life when you get out of high school. Is this something new for kids in 2019? Because for me, it seems like a tale as old as time. Yeah, so I think definitely it is a tale as old as time in that, you know, a lot of people when they're 16, 17, 18 years old, they have no idea what they're doing. Um, They are still learning about themselves and their interests and their likes and dislikes. And translating that into a career path is going to be difficult for most people. Um, I think what's different about right now is that change in the workforce and the job market is happening faster than it ever has before. A lot of kids who graduate high school this year in five to 10 years will have jobs that don't even exist yet. So I think what's different for this generation of students is the uncertainty of all job markets. And this isn't even just traditional job markets that have been, you know, um, traditionally uh, unstable. I'm thinking journalism is a really good example because uh, jobs have gone down over the years. Um, But now even in traditionally stable uh, jobs like accounting and law, those jobs are unstable too, to a degree. So I think that's what really makes this time different. That's really interesting. I didn't think of it that way in the sense that technology is changing the workforce so quickly that students mm-hmm. graduating from high school must be aware of the fact that a role they may be interested in might not be a role that still has a place in our society by the time they go from high school through their post-secondary education. They're probably more aware of that even than we are. Exactly. Automation is obviously a huge one. A lot of jobs that we thought could never be automated are actually becoming automated. But new jobs are coming up because with that automation, new needs arise. You know, for every robot that exists, there has to be somebody who knows how to fix the robot, for example. Very true. And with that said, are we seeing students shying away from wanting to go into trades such as mechanics? And are they leaning more towards those white collar jobs or technology driven jobs instead of traditional trades? Yeah, this is an interesting topic. The data is really sparse on this. Um, what we do know is that uh, traditional um, or not traditional, what we do know is STEM degrees are higher paying in the long run. Um, So I think that speaks a little bit to, you know, more people do want to be in those science, technology, engineering, and math trades. Um, But I think, too, that there's a big stigma around going to college over university, and this is going to be covered in the online series as well. Um, 
you know, what we're hearing from a lot of kids across the country is that they have always thought that college would be a better fit for them. They see a program that appeals to them. They're intrigued by the hands-on experiential learning aspect of a college degree or diploma. Um, But there's a big stigma that persists amongst their friends and their peers, amongst their educators and administrators, and also amongst their parents, the age-old sort of understanding is that college is for people who are not as smart or who are more inclined to do jobs like manual labor or blue-collar labor, as you say. Um, And university is for people who want to to angle themselves towards these white-collar careers. But that's not the reality anymore. And, you know, experts can tell you that... um, College is an amazing opportunity for kids who maybe learn differently, less theoretically, need more hand on, who need more hands-on experience, um, and it can absolutely lead to a white-collar job. In fact, as a journalist, a lot of my colleagues uh, went to journalism school at a college and are now working full-time for a national news organization. So I think that breaking down that stigma is one step in the right direction. To what degree does a person's culture and their ethnicity come into play when we're talking about going from high school into university, the pressures that they face and the indecision that they experience. Yeah, so this is a really interesting aspect. Um, A lot, so we interviewed, I probably interviewed 15 kids across the country and a lot of them um, at some point in the interview would bring in their cultural background and their ethnicity when they were explaining the, the decisions that they made. So I spoke to one girl, Pearl is her name. She's in grade, or she has recently graduated from university, but when she was in high school, she was trying to figure out what to do. And she felt like her Sri Lankan background and her South Asian community um, really left her no choice but to go to university. And that was okay for her. She said to me, you know, university was always something that I really looked forward to as an academically inclined person who's interested in theoretical applications of what I'm, what I was studying. Um, university did make sense. But had I been somebody who was more interested in, you know, maybe a technical program, maybe I wanted to go into something like media or, um, you know, some sort of more hands-on skill or trade, um, then that would have been really tough for me because my parents were immigrants to Canada. And the whole reason that they made all the sacrifices that they did were so that I would have the opportunity to go to university and get the best possible education and the best possible chances of having a successful career here in Canada. Um, So it really was never a choice for her. And I, I do think that that pressure can play a role too. You feel, Pearl said she felt responsible for sort of living out the dreams of her parents. And it all worked out for her in the end. But I think for some students who might not, you know, university might not be the right fit, this can put a lot of pressure on them. That's really interesting, though, these parents saying, look, I sacrificed, I struggled, I came to a country where I didn't speak the language, I had to take one, two, three jobs in order to be able to provide for my family here in this new country, where I expect you to get the best education you can and a white collar job coming out of it. And if you don't, you are disappointing, basically, for the parents, the whole reason why they came to Canada. Exactly. And I mean, can you think of any thing more intense like that pressure even just talking about it with you really makes me makes me feel sort of anxious and I feel for these kids because you know this goes back to this this stigma that we were talking about I think if we can 
present colleges as a, like, it's a viable option. As you say, your whole family went to a college, you know, um, you get jobs when you go to college. And in fact, some kids I spoke to said that they had more success, you know, kids who went to university and college, they had more success getting jobs when they went to college because it provided them with a network. It provided them with hands-on skills that they could transfer directly into the workplace. So I really think by talking about it more and, you know, maybe it's even an educator getting involved and speaking directly to the parents and explaining that this could be a better choice for individual students, then that can help sort of alleviate some of that pressure off of the student because there's so much pressure on them, like as it is, without that added layer. That's Megan Colley, Global News Online journalist, talking with our Nikki Reitmeyer about her series called Failure to Launch, the struggles that some Canadian students are having to really be prepared for the real world and what needs to be done uh, to make sure they are prepared. Now, if you want to weigh in, if you've got a story to tell me, send me at cknw.com.